This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. Mandatory uh, tariffs. Um, I don't know if we're, you know, we're, we're, we're going to have to expand on this one. I don't think a minute and a half will uh, be able to get there. But access copyright versus York University, the decision, and then the undoubted uh, appeal that, that's coming. Um, you know, do you feel that, uh, well... In particular, you know, the dispute between uh, departments of education across Canada and school boards in Ontario is whether the tariff put in place by the copyright boards are mandatory. So do you believe that tariffs should be mandatory? Yes or no, and why? The Federal Court of Appeal delivered its long-awaited copyright ruling in the York University versus Access Copyright case last month. This latest decision effectively confirms that educational institutions can opt out of the access copyright license since the license is not mandatory, and that any claims of copyright infringement will be left to the copyright owners to address, not access copyright. That's a big win for York University and the education community, though they were not left completely happy with the outcome given the court's fair dealing analysis. The decision represents a major validation for University of Toronto law professor Ariel Katz, whose research and publications, which made the convincing case that a mandatory tariff lacks any basis in law, was directly acknowledged by the court and played a huge role in its analysis. Professor Katz joins me on the podcast this week to talk about the case, the role of collective licensing and copyright law, and what might come next for a case that may force access copyright to rethink the value proposition of its license. Ariel, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a, it's a real pleasure. Before, before we get started, how are you doing? How are you managing under the current circumstances? Um, I'm, I'm okay. Yeah, I think we're pretty privileged. You know, we have where to live and we have works that allows us to work from home uh so you know, we can't complain much <laughs> okay i'm glad to hear i agree with yes. you the academics uh, are in a good are, in, are relatively speaking in a good position because certainly compared to to many others and i'm certainly grateful yeah. for that uh i think academics would also typically be grateful when they see their work having a real impact you know we write and we research uh, speak and engage to educate uh, and oftentimes as well to try to ensure that uh, there's an impact whether from at a political policy level or within the courts and you I think in this particular case in the York University access copyright case really in some ways hit the pinnacle here with your research being so front and center and being directly acknowledged by the courts so congratulations I think it's it's an enormous achievement to see your work have that kind of impact and I'm really glad that you've join me on the podcast to help explain, I think, the background for which a lot of people aren't necessarily familiar, the role of copyright collectives, then I'm hoping we can get both into the case and for you to share some of your thoughts and analysis on some of the reaction that we've seen since. But why don't we start with Access Copyright? Can you give us a bit of a background on the copyright collective and how it fits into education? Uh, okay, so Access Copyright was founded in 1988. It was then called CanCopy, and I think we can trace its origin to the advent of photocopying. So photocopying became began to be widely used in the 1960s and 70s, and even more through the 1980s. 
And it was one of those first technologies that really allowed end users to easily and cheaply make copies of, of copyrighted works, in that case, written works. And as we know from other experiences with other technologies, the introduction of those new copying technologies often prompts uh, kind of the world is ending complaints from publishers. So if everyone can copy, why would you, people would stop buying? And that's going to be the end of the world of of, uh, of publishing. Now, as an empirical matter, not only those complaints of harm, of the harms of copying, turn out to be untrue. In reality, what happened was that because photocopying made books and journals more valuable for the institutions who buy them or subscribe to them, uh, because they, make, they became more valuable, that actually allowed publishers to start charging much higher prices for them, or at least for the institutional subscriptions and earn much greater profits, and many of them adapted very nicely uh, to those new technologies. But that did not stop publishers from making broad assertion that photocopying is clearly an infringement of copyright and that all copyright requires a license. Now, on the other side, the educational institutions largely accepted that view. And that's probably because the concept of fair dealing was much less developed uh, then, than it, uh, it had become, become since then. Um, and also conventional wisdom for many years held that fair dealing is a very narrow exception and it's not something you can actually rely on. Um, in addition to that, educational, institutional, educational institutions are also tend to be very risk averse and litigation averse, and they also have a strong ethical commitment to giving example and being good citizens are buying the law, but they also copy a lot of material. So the result was that the educational institution accepted the view that they needed licenses for all of those photocopying, but that presented a practical problem. Typically the library buys a book or subscribes to a journal, but that's all they get. They get the printed copy, um, not a license to make additional copy. So the idea that you need to get a license, again, created this major practical problem. How would you get all those additional licenses that you, that you need? So Access Copyright was formed to provide a nice solution to this practical problem. The idea was that it would give licenses on behalf of uh, all the copyright owners, or at least the vast majority of them. It would charge a little fee. Creators and publishers will be paid. The universities will get the licenses that they need. There will be no need to litigate about copyright. And you know, everyone would live happily ever after. So we start with a pretty good story in terms of uh, the notion of, of licensing being in the best interests of, of all the stakeholders in the process. Uh, but I know that things begin to change, certainly in the 2000s. What, what was it that started to drive some of the change and created discord between the educational community and access copyright? Yeah, so there are, there are several uh, changes that occurred during the, 90, the, the 2000s and that put many of the assumptions that led to the creation of, uh, of access copyright under pressure. So on the legal front, uh, we have, in 2004, the Supreme Court of Canada decided the CCH case, case, which was a case about libraries and fair dealing. And actually, the story behind the case was that it was Access Copyright who was really the motivator behind the case. So Access recruited three legal publishers to sue the law society 
uh, Axis paid uh, a significant part of the litigation cost. And the hope was that if they win, uh, this would drive the law society, but also all the legal, the law firms, and even more broadly, the business sector to purchase licenses from Access Corporate. But that didn't work. They lost big time. And the Supreme Court construed the concept of fair dealing very broadly and reoriented copyright law to a much more user-friendly direction. So that's challenged the assumption that all copying needed a license. And slowly universities began to realize that actually a lot of what they do might actually be legal and they don't need the license, they need to pay for that. So that was one important development. Uh, but other important developments uh, are really tied to the technological change and the, to move from photocopying to digital. So Access Copyright was formed to deal with photocopying licenses. And, and this is what it did. It, it gave licenses to photocopy. But during the 2000s, it became clear that the digital copying is the real deal. But this was not something that Access Copyright could give universities. At the same time, publishers and universities moved, started moving to digital subscriptions, first for journals, but increasingly over to, to books. And the licensing deals that they entered into began to cover more and more of the acts that universities needed, both in paper and in digital forms. So the publisher, the publisher who figured that out found that the move to, be, to digital to be even more profitable. Um, and universities over the last decades have been paying increasing amount of license fees to publishers. Then some of those publishers became hugely profitable, profitable companies. Um, now, universities pay millions of dollars for those licenses, but by and large, more and more of those licenses give us uh, their, what we need, or uh, whether what we need practically. And in any way, they are much more generous than the licenses that Access Copyright has been given. Uh, but also because the publisher figured they actually have those licensing relationship with, uh, with the universities and those turned to be very profitable for them, they were very reluctant and had no good reason to let Access Copyright do that on that behalf. So the combination of all those changes raised more and more questions about what's the point and what's the value in getting those licenses from Access Copyright. But Access Copyright, instead of figuring out something better to offer, or at least lowering its prices, its reaction was to ask for more money. So, and as a result of that, the, when the, the licenses were about to expire at the end of 2010, the parties really could not agree on the renewal of the term and uh, and that led to uh, where we are today. Okay, so the relationship breaks so the relationship breaks down largely between many in the education community and access copyright driven as you've suggested both by changes in the law coming out of the courts not in this case legislative reform which wouldn't even come for a couple of years later but rather through the Supreme Court of Canada in a case that you mentioned ironically enough access copyright had a significant hand in but then even more driven by changes in technology and the available availability of alternative licenses that offered more and better value for educational institutions. So as those institutions shift to shift their licensing strategy towards 
other licenses offered by publishers as opposed to access copyright, what is access copyright's response? Right. So when the, the parties reached this impasse in negotiation, uh, so access decided instead to go to the copyright board. So they filed a proposed tariff with the board and also asked the board to approve an interim tariff. That was the end of 2010. Uh, and its theory was that once the board approves a tariff, any unauthorized reproduction by an, edu- an educational institution would trigger an obligation to pay the entire amount of royalties under the tariff. So, for example, in the case of my university, U of T, it would be enough that a single, if, if a single professor or a student or librarian or staff member made only a single infringing copy of just one work under that theory of access copyright, that would make U of T liable to paying approximately $2 million a year. Now, this may sound absurd, and it is, but initially universities believed that legally that was the case. That was the impact of what happens when the board approves tariff. They thought that the only way for them to get around that is by relying on fair dealing, which initially they were more reluctant to do, even after CCH. But after in 2012, when the Supreme Court uh, reaffirmed what it had previously said about fair dealing and even expanded its application. And also the same year, their parliament added education explicitly to the fair dealing provision. Uh, that gave universities more confidence the, uh, to think that they could rely on fair dealing and avoid the fate of this mandatory tariff. Um, also around that time, I wrote uh, my first kind of a, a long, long blog post explaining uh, that was my initial take on why manda- the mandatory tariff theory was wrong. And some, I know that some universities were also were comforted by that. Since uh, around 2012, we saw an increasing number of universities starting gradually to opt out and not renew their access, uh, not operate under this interim tariff. Uh, and that okay, was, so I just want to let me just stop you there to make sure we're following along. So yeah. access copyright goes to the board in this case seeking a tariff under the view that if the access if the board itself establishes what the appropriate fee, which is allocated on a per student basis, is, that they can then go to the universities and say this is a requirement, particularly if even there is one case of infringement, that you must then pay for all of your students on campus, whatever the fee set by the university happens to be. The response from many universities, and it grows over time, is that they increasingly rely on their their worried about that legal theory, but they believe both with the licensing that they're engaged in as well as fair dealing that they're they're safely in compliance with copyright Canadian copyright law and thus say that they are not going to agree to that copyright license. Yes, exactly. Yep. Okay. And then take us to the next step. What is access copyright's response as universities make that counter move in effect to say we're not going to be bound by this uh, by this license? Okay. Yeah. So yeah, so then they access copyright brings a lawsuit against York uh, in 2013. Now, he didn't sue York for infringement, uh, but it sued, uh, it asked the court to enforce the tariff under the, that mandatory tariff theory. So the theory was York made at least a few or at least some infringing copies. 
And because that was the case, they now have the obligation to pay the entire amount under the tariff. They can't really opt out of the tariff. It's, uh, it's not for them to decide. It is now where they have a legal duty to comply with the tariff. Okay, so Access Copyright puts its theory to the test, essentially saying this tariff is mandatory. Uh, we can show that we believe there's been some infringement, and thus all students will be, would be required, to, the university would be required to pay on behalf of all students. Uh, I know that York University counters by pointing to its fair dealing guidelines and asks the court to, to adjudicate on those guidelines, is to say whether or not they believe the guidelines themselves are compliant, though not necessarily whether or not they have infringed copyright. Uh, right, yeah. So, I mean, in a way, I, I, unfortunately, so at the earlier stages of the litigation, New York did not seem to be convinced by by my argument that the mandatory theory has no legal basis. So they put their 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 entire effort on saying, well, the man, it's only mandatory if we make infringing copies. But since we have those guidelines, and in CCH, the Supreme Court said that an institution can rely, if it has a general, if it's guidelines and they're good enough, the institution can rely on those guidelines and what it would do would be fair dealing, then nothing that we do would trigger this obligation to pay the tariff. So they, so that's why the fair dealing became part of 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 the litigation even though that was not really it was not an infringement lawsuit okay Um, so the case winds its way first through the federal court and then more recently just in the last few weeks to the federal court of appeal uh what's the what's the bottom line that we heard from the federal court of appeal and then perhaps we can walk through a little bit how the court relied so heavily on on your work in coming to the conclusion that it did Right. Okay. So on the so there were two issues in, in the before the federal court of appeal. One was the whether the tariff is mandatory, and the other one was could you know if it is mandatory, could uh, York rely on its fair dealing uh, guidelines to get an immunity on the mandatory tariff issue? The court of appeal uh, held uh, that the tariff is not mandatory. Uh, and that, in a way, could and should have ended the case. But because York also asked the court to make this declaration to give a kosher certificate for its guideline, the, the court also had to deal with that. And on that issue, York did not fare as well. Uh, the court held that it failed to persuade that uh, it, it found some deficiencies in the fair guidelines that it adopted or, 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 or noted that some of its argument below were not persuasive. So the court refused to issue this declaration that would give York this broad immunity that anything that it does uh, under the guidelines is fair dealing. It's really the, the mandatory tariff that, of course, becomes the key aspect of this decision as as well as the part that for a lot of people is is a challenge to, to fully understand so perhaps you can walk us through a little bit what the the court's reasoning is the historical development of canadian copyright law and the issue which relied so heavily on your work in this area yeah okay so i'll try i think it may be useful to start by recognizing that corporate collectives are somewhat anomalous entities in our uh you know economy and our legal system. 
And they're anomalous because when copyright owners administer their copyrights collectively, they no longer compete with each other with respect to those rights that they administer collectively. And they set the price together of those licenses with respect to those rights. And when those collectives act on behalf of a very large number of copyright owners, and they often do, they can effectively monopolize the entire market. Now, normally, we would discourage such practices, and which might even be criminal under the Competition Act. But in copyright, we actually not only tolerate, but in a way encourage the creation of those monopolies and the elimination of competition. So why do we do that? Now, we do that because there is an assumption that collective administration is the most efficient and convenient way to administer copyright, and it's convenient both for users and for owners, but provided that those collectives are well-regulated to prevent the potential abuse of their market power. So this system follows a rather familiar regulatory paradigm of regulated monopolies, similar to the one that we may find in other contexts where monopoly is thought to be more efficient than uh, intensive competitions, such in the case of utilities or common carriers, where we have economies of scale that result in what economists call natural monopolies. So a common response in such situation is to tolerate and sometimes encourage the monopoly, but also but regulate it. And a typical component of the regulation is determining the maximum price that the monopolists can charge and imposing on the monopolists an obligation to provide service to anyone who's willing to pay that regulated price. Okay, so it really limits the power of the monopolists and to protect the users from abuse of that power and allow everyone to enjoy from the efficiency of, of, of the service. So what my research on the history of collective and and the whole statutory framework that we have had over the years uh, has shown and and the Court of Appeal recognized was that this is exactly the regulatory scheme uh, of corporate collective that Parliament adopted uh, in 1936. And... Uh, So back then, Parliament recognized that collective administration may be an effective and convenient way to administer copyrights, but it's also recognized that uh, when um, all of those copyright owners get together and stop competing with each other, they gain significant market power that they can use and abuse against the users. So the solution was to take away the collective's power to unilaterally determine the terms of trade and the prices and who they deal with and whom they they do not. Uh, So, which means that the the collective cannot charge more than what the board approves. And they or their members can sue anyone who, can, can sue for infringement, anyone who pays or offers to pay what the board approves. So that means that if you offer to pay what the board approved, you become legally entitled to use the work, whether the collective gives you a license or not. So you're, you become statutorily licensed to use the works. Now, the other side of that coin is that if you offered to pay, but then failed to pay, the collective can sue you to collect those amounts. But they can only sue to collect the amounts under the tariff from someone who availed herself of the tariff, from someone who became licensee under this statutory license. 
But if there is a user such as York that said, I'm not interested in being a licensee, I don't want your licenses, then you can't sue them to collect the license fees because they are not licensees. Such a user may be an infringer, but that's the question, whether infringement occurred or not. And and that had to be determined in an action for copyright infringement, which in the case of access copyright, it could not bring because only copyright owners can sue for infringers. And access is not the owner of the copyright or an exclusive licensee. Now, some have looked at this decision, and certainly the response that we've seen from Access Copyright and the publishers has been to essentially tell the government copyright law is broken if this is the outcome. How, how do you respond to, to that, uh, that argument? I mean, this is just a strange argument. I mean, uh, what this argument that the copyright law is broken is, well, A, it's something that copyright law was never meant to be, but essentially the argument would completely take copyright law and turn it on its head and copyright law and the system of collective administration. So again, the rationale for collective administration, we allow those monopolistic entities to operate because we think it may be convenient for everyone, but we need to uh, make sure that they don't gain too much power and don't exercise too much power. But if the law was what access copyright and its supporters think that it should be, that would be the complete reverse. It would mean that not only those copyright owners can eliminate competition among themselves and create those monopolies, they can now go even further and force the users to deal with them and to pay them even if a user say, I don't need your license. Now, publishers have, have also, as part of that criticism, said that what it, where it leaves them is uh, having a right, but no remedy. How would you respond to, to those concerns? Yeah, I think we really need to kind of unpack or, or interrogate what, what they mean by that. Uh, well, obviously, they have copyrights. I mean, if they own the copyright, they, they have them and they can sue them uh, like any other copyright owners. Now, Uh, What they cannot do is get this type of super remedy that would give them much more than they have by virtue of their copyright. Now, uh, that doesn't make them remedy-less, right? Now, if they mean that, if they point that, you know, access to justice is costly, you need to hire lawyers, and it takes time, and, 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 and... Okay, yeah, there may be a problem with that, but there is nothing. But this is kind of a general problem <laughs> that we have in the law. And it's not clear at all that publishers are uh, more aggravated by this, this problem than, uh, than other plaintiffs throughout the law. Uh, now, we have statutory damages that in part, address some of those issues. They can uh, uh, bring class actions if the conditions for that are, are, uh, exist. There are many ways, again, if, if the idea is, oh, we're too small and we can't really afford litigation, there are many ways to overcome that. There is also nothing that prevents access copyright from helping them in the litigation. That's exactly what it did in the CCH case. 
speaking of access copyright, uh, I mean, you've, you've noted that, that effectively their theory of their license has been rejected now by the Federal Court of Appeals. So where do you think this leaves a copyright collective like access? Well, I think it leaves access in a very um, challenging position. <laughs> but, but the sources of, of that challenge is that I mean, it was really created and the business model was really created to deal with a specific problem of photocopying that uh, that occurred in a, under a specific perception of what copyright means. So as long as that was the case, it offered something that universities thought and felt uh, it was something they needed and something that gave them value and they were willing to pay for that. Uh, but when the legal environment changed and technological advantage changed and, and business practices responded to the, those changes, access copyright left was left with really nothing valuable to offer. And this is the main reason why universities figure that out and they say we just we're paying a lot of money for something that we don't really need so access corporate insisted that they could impose itself on on users and now if it could that it could continue to operate but if it cannot then that raises a big question kind of existential question for access copyright uh what can we do if we want to remain in in business? Well, the answer is if they can figure out something that is valuable and worth paying for, great. I'm sure if they do, uh, universities or other users would be willing and, and happy to pay. We, as we do, we can universities, we pay hundreds of millions of dollars for copyright licenses. Um, and uh, if, again, if there's something of value that access could offer, that would be great. I'm not sure that there is, but uh, but if they can figure that out, that that would be welcome. Fair enough. I mean, I think that's the point that many have been making over the last number of years about the relative value of the license and, and why we've seen the shift that we have now confirmed by this court decision. The court, of course, also does touch on fair dealing, not touch on, there's a, there's a fair dealing discussion. Uh, but as in reaction to that discussion, there have been many who have argued that this demonstrably shows that York infringed copyright. Uh, is that the case? It's demonstrably not the case. So, I mean, but that's, uh, there's an important uh, kind of nuance here. So what York asked the court to declare was that it, has this general policy and those guidelines and because of those guidelines any copy and reproduction made within the parameters of those guidelines uh, would be fair dealing and in the cch case one of the issues that arose there was could the library rely on such guidelines or does it have to show that every dealing of every work was fair dealing on an individual basis? The Supreme Court said that the institutions can choose to do either. Yeah, if you want, if you have guidelines and you want to rely on them and those guidelines are good enough, you, you could. So, and this is what, what York tried to do and it failed. The court said, you didn't persuade us that 
your guidelines are good enough so that every copy made in accordance with them would necessarily be fair dealing. So York failed to do that. But it does not follow that because they can't get, they couldn't get this broad immunity that all the copies that were made are necessarily infringing. It just means that they did not get, they don't get this broad defense, but this doesn't really tell anything about the individual copies. We still, if you're pursued by the owner, they would, the owners would still have to go and, they, and access, and New York would have to defend on a work-by-work work basis. And the answer there, maybe in some cases it's infringing, maybe in others it, it is not. Where, where do you see uh, this headed? What next for this case? Is, is the Supreme Court likely to be the next stop? That's a big question. I, I can, if I would have to, but I would bet that Access Copyright would seek leave to appeal because it it really has nothing to lose at this point. I mean, if they could somehow convince the Supreme Court to take the case, they would have a chance in trying to convince the Supreme Court to overturn the decision of the Court of Appeal. Uh, now, the Supreme Court... It's not an automatic appeal, so the Supreme Court has to be persuaded that uh, it is a case that's worth uh, taking. So it will be very interesting to see what they uh, what they argue if they seek leave to appeal. I mean, so they would have to explain why the decision below is incorrect. I don't know what they will say because I think the decision is very solid. It will also be interesting to see whether York's uh, asks the Supreme Court to overturn the decision about its, its guidelines. Um, I think it'd be interesting what, what they do, and it's not obvious to me that uh, um, what would be the best strategy for, for them to do. You've done such a, an exceptional job in your writing, and I think now on this podcast. So, so thank you for your work, and, and thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you very much, Michael. It was a great pleasure. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Mm-hmm.